Second Samuel chapter 24 this evening, we should finish up. The deadly ambition is what we're considering. Ambition can make us not want to want to obey God. Be very mindful of that. Of course, is there an echo in here? Yeah, a little bit? Nobody wants to answer? No, just me. All right. Strike that from the record. There is an echo here, I'm telling you. It's Okay, we're still considering this epilogue that is attached to the life of David. And as we're looking at another fault of David, which happened earlier in his reign, we have to remember that David is the one that consolidated the kingdom. And, well, I mean, Saul, you could say he did. Too, but really he did not. David really built the kingdom. And then, of course, he left us with so many of these wonderful psalms. The record that we are considering this evening is likely very early in his reign as king over the north and south parts of Israel, southern parts of Israel, before he sinned with Bathsheba. First Chronicles 27 uh, gives us a clue about that. In verses 33 and 34, where it mentions Ahithophel, Bathsheba's grandfather, still being part of David's cabinet or his administration. Likely, of course, after he had taken Jerusalem and uh, was moving forward with everything, was very successful. uh, This story lacks vital information to explain to us why such a heavy judgment came on David. And we'll look at some of the thoughts of different good, uh, great Bible teachers. Um, but it's, it's worth just talking about now. I'm thinking, I'm talking as though you understand what's coming. You know what's coming. Well, just in case you don't, David is going to move to number the, the military, to, to see what kind of a war machine he has. And as a result of that, God is going to become very angry with him. Satan is behind David doing this, and there will be deaths. Over 70,000 of of Israel's men will die because of the judgment God puts on them. And so you you say to yourself, did God come down that heavy on David just for numbering the troops? When, okay, he should not have numbered them, but is this, does the punishment fit the crime? And I ask while I'm reading this, why did they veil this? Why don't they tell us? Why don't they come out and say why this was a crime? And to suggest, well, only God calls for the leaders to number the people. Okay, granted, but I don't think uh, uh, it merited this kind of judgment when we look at other judgments going on in the Scripture. So this is why we need to spend a little time on it uh, to find out why did they classify the details but declassify the event itself? Well, the more I think about it, I keep coming back to this same thing, is that David was looking to invade another country. And this was not going to be a little problem. Had he pulled it off, it would have been a big problem. So to number the troops... He ends up with over, almost, uh, over a million and a half troops ready for war. That's an invasion force. Now, Assyria and Babylon, 
they were not yet developed into the kingdoms that they will later become. At this point, Egypt to the south of Israel is really not very strong. Her power has, has faded. She would make a juicy prize for David, for the Jews. If you just thought of it as a, uh, a king not governed by God, just what would a king do? He has all this power now. The nation is stable. Well, I'll look to my, you know, north and south and west and see if there's anything that I can do to make the kingdom even stronger. Well, if I march my forces into Egypt, I can take that Nile Delta and we'll have food and and commerce and just be a, a superpower. And I think that's where this was going. Otherwise, nothing else makes sense. When, when you look at uh, the, the history, the judgment, uh, the, the nature of the kings, and you say, yeah, had David, is, incidentally, Israel, I know of no record of Israel ever invading another country to conquer them. Now, Israel calls its military the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, because they, they only defend themselves. Now, when, in the act of defense, they will take the war into the invading country. So when Hezbollah launches missiles from Damascus, Syria, or, or you know any of Lebanon, Syria, the Jews will send troops into that area to put it down. Their reasoning is, and they're very upfront about this, why should we fight over our land when we're not the aggressors? And so as you look at the history, the kings of Israel really did not go and invade other peoples. The Babylonians did, the Assyrians did, the Egyptians, everybody else was doing this. Had David invaded Egypt, that would have, well, of course the Jews had one invasion when they entered Canaan under the leadership of Joshua, but that was a judgment of God and it was an invasion in the land of Canaan. Outside of that, there were no others. Had David invaded a foreign land, that would have set a precedence for following kings. Israel would have been knocked off her course. This is what, not what God wanted to do. So my point is this was a big deal. And why the reasons are classified, uh, that's my assumption. Well, God did not want other nations to know this is what David was up to. Because they would have probably, you know, it, it would have upset the region. And that's why it is cryptic. Oh, that's my o- overview of what's going on. I hope I didn't confuse you with that. Well, let's look at it. Maybe it will make more sense. Verse 1, again, the anger of Yahweh was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Well, that again uh, marks the second outbreak of God. The first one in chapter 21 was a three-year famine It was a problem David inherited from Saul. Saul persecuted uh, the Gibeonites, and they wanted justice, and and God moved David to execute justice, and that was done with. Well, this is the second one. It tells us here, the anger of Yahweh was aroused against Israel. Well, what is not said in 2 Samuel, but in the parallel account in Chronicles, is Satan has influenced Israel. David, the devil is interested in attacking the will of God in believers. Um, It is a relentless tactic of his. It's very successful, or it has been successful for him. It was against David. 
And uh, so much so that David's going to refuse to listen to reason. He's going to be very stubborn in his determination to number these troops. It says, then he moved, and he moved David. So rereading that section, the anger of Yahweh was aroused against Israel, and he moved David. Who is the he, that pronoun? Is it God? The translators have assigned that pronoun. They've made it, in most translations, they've capitalized the pronoun he, indicating that it refers to God. That God moved David to do this. Well, that wouldn't make any sense uh, to move David to do it and then judge him for it. You say, <clears throat> plus, well, of course, we know uh, the Lord does not tempt. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Well, then we have to figure out what's going on here. If this was all the information we had, we would be, kind of, we would be stuck. But it's not all the information that we have. It is an Old Testament practice. The writers, those who wrote and gave us the Old Testament, uh, they would write in such a way sometimes because they believe that God is the cause of all that takes place in the sense that he is sovereign. And nothing happens without his permission. And so we read in the book of Exodus when it says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Well, we know Pharaoh's heart was already hardened. God just continued to allow it to be hardened by withdrawing himself from Pharaoh's life and not influencing him, letting him go the course that he chose. Job said it this way, and Job was half right and half wrong. Job, in response to... uh, those, his friends that were accusing him of being so wicked. Job said, the earth is given into the hand of the wicked. And then he said, if it is not he who does this, who else could it be? Well, the first part is not accurate, and God will deal with Job on that at the end of the book of Job. But that clause, if it is not he, who else could it be? The scripture is trustworthy. We have to say, well, what, what is going on here? Did God move David? Well, we have just established that God is sovereign. Satan cannot move without permission. Chronicles tells us that it was Satan that moved him. Why are the translators making it sound like God is doing it here in Samuel? Well, for that reason. So the scripture clarifies itself by context, grammar, parallel verses, opening up for us the record that is before us. And so we read in First Chronicles 21, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. The book of Samuel was written first. Then the book of Chronicles was written. And in Chronicles, the writers closer to the event are opening up the, these uh, points that have been overlooked or passed over, passed over by those who penned Second uh, Samuel. The conclusion is clear that the devil influenced David to do this and that pronoun and he moved David is not uh, typical whereas the previous pronoun was in reference to God. This one is in reference to Satan and the writers of Samuel would have had the information and felt no problem and also would have said very quickly, Satan gets to do nothing without God's permission. 
And that is how they meant it without assigning blame to God. So, God is said to cause whatever he allows. Bottom line is how some of them, uh, how they, they wrote their account. Okay, moving on. Against them to, to say, go number Israel and Judah. Satan behind the whole thing. This throws light upon David's sin. David is now uh, being influenced by the devil. And uh, God is letting that happen. Verse 2. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of people. And so here is David's order to find out how big of a war machine he has. Um, this is making him aggressive. Just what God does not want him to be. He didn't number his gold bars or how many chariots or kingly robes he had. He is numbering the troops. This would be, he knows what his standing army is. He does not know what his militia is. The troops to the reserves that they would call up in a time of war. That's what he wants to find out. And to give you, I guess, a a little perspective on it. I think in the Gulf War, there were 400,000 allies sent over there. Well, David has one million, a million and a half troops for what he wants to do. In days before, uh, there were the kind of aircraft that could take so many troops. They could march on Egypt very quickly. Verse, verse uh, 3, And Joab said to the king, now may Yahweh your God add to the people a hundred times more than they are. And may the eyes of the Lord, of, of my Lord the King see it. But why does my Lord the King desire this thing? Well, being a military issue, the army was to handle the counting of reserved forces, but even Joab could see this wasn't right. Now, Joab likely knew the intentions, what David was thinking. There would have had to have been more things involved than just numbering the troops if he was going to invade some other people. And again, I think Egypt would have been the one. Uh, the Philistines and the Hivites and all the others in the land, they were subdued by David. They were no longer a military threat. And Egypt really wasn't either, though she had a greater ability to get strong than, than the others did. But Joab saw that this was wrong. Uh, David doesn't care what Joab thinks. He's determined, he's ambitious here, and he's determined to do it. Verse 4, Nevertheless, the, king, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captain of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. Now, Joab is steaming. He's pretty hot about this. And so much so, he's, he's going to be a little insubordination, and David's going to send him out again. And then God is going to interfere with the whole thing. But uh, pride is blinding. And this is a self-serving type of pride. That uh, self-exaltation that really is blocking God out. David is saying, I'm king. God has put me on the throne. And um, I can get to work and really establish the nation. Solomon does a similar thing, but he does it through commerce. He wants to make Israel a world player, and it gets him in total trouble, of course. He messes up everything trying to do that instead of uh, 
It's like the church. When the church remains the church, she's stronger. But when the church tries to become an entertainment center, a social you know, center, or other things, she gets you know, maybe more people, but the, 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 the gospel is now compromised. She gets weaker and oftentimes end up, ends up not even preaching the gospel anymore because he wants to, to, to keep the people. Then the next thing you know, they're asking for money to do this and to do that. Who needs the Holy Spirit? Who needs what God wants? We can raise money on our own. Uh, so it is human, fallen human nature, and it can happen on any level of life, in the home, on the in, in the individual, in the church, and here it is, the kingdom. That self-serving pride shows up in Isaiah 14 with Satan. You think he would have been satisfied being an exalted cherub of God. No, he wanted more. Then there was Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, who was eaten with pride. He was warned by Daniel not to, not to let this thing run out of control. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself, and while he was doing it, of course, he was uh, smitten with madness. Pride can drive us crazy is the Bible's lesson. Self-serving pride, self-exalting pride can drive us out of our minds. And there are two lessons, Isaiah 14 and Daniel 4. It will take Job almost 10 months to number the people. Well, that's time for David to, to come to snap out of it. But he does not. In fact, he's so deep into his ambition that the man of God cannot go to him. He's in a state of denial. A uh, very easy place for us to get to. We latch on to some sin, and we don't want to hear it. We justify it. We deny that it's anything wrong. And that's, uh, that's where David is. And that will come out, verse 5, And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in a roar on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazer, they, verse 6 now, then they camped, uh, came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadshi. They came to Dan Jaan and around to Sidon. Okay, hold on a second. Why are we getting these details and you won't tell us why this is such a big crime? It should be explicitly stated. It should have said, David sinned against the Lord because... But it really doesn't give us that. And that's why I, I gave you my, my take on it. For the punishment that God doles out to match the crime, it had to be something larger than just numbering without permission or um, uh, pride. That, that was part. Both of those were part of it. It was David's pride. It was numbering without permission. But it had to be something more for them to classify it. And the only reason I could think that they would have classified it again is so that the enemies didn't find out, hey, David has got some ag aggressive tendencies towards us. And God says, I'm going to put an end to that. And maybe that's why we never read about Israel's kings ever becoming aggressive. As I mentioned to this day, Israel is not an aggressive nation against the surrounding territories. Uh, although, if you, you, you mess with them, you know, the, the United States had to call off Ariel Sharon going into Egypt. He was about to take Cairo. They were begging him to stop. Uh, anyway, uh, verse 7. 
And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went south to Judah as far as Beersheba. So in these details, we have a clue. And one of the clues that is looking at us in verse 7 is David is drafting Gentiles into the military. These are Gentile cities, the Hivites and the Canaanites. Uh, He's, again, building a war machine. He wants to know what his standing army is, what his militia is, and those uh, allies that, you know, it used to be with England, when when the crown went to war, the colonies followed. So Australia and uh, New Zealand, India, whoever was under the the crown of, of England, they went to war with England. Uh, This was how they, you know, one of the reasons why they were involved in the Second World War, uh, in the First World War. Uh, My point is, David is not, it's not an uncommon practice even in those days. If If the people were subjugated to the throne, and David needed their troops, then he'd get them. Uh, Verse 8, So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And that's how long it took them to find out how large of a war machine he had. It was a comprehensive census of of able-bodied men for war. And verse 9, Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So a lot of artists there, uh, people that could draw the sword. Yeah, I know, I do that. I just How can you not? I mean, it's just, can they come up with another way to express that? Uh, anyway, uh, this again is an incomplete census. Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 21, the parallel account, giving us more information into what happened. We read in verse 6 of 1 Chronicles. But he, Job, he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. So he's disgusted, Joab is. And the type of man that he was, he's being insubordinate. He wouldn't stand for this from a, a, a subordinate to his rank, and yet he's sneaking it through on David. Uh, so he purposely with, withholds a complete uh, compliance to his orders in disgust, which is not valid. However, however, as I mentioned, David sends him back. First Chronicles again, chapter 27. Joab, the son of Zariah, be, uh, began a census, but he did not finish. For wrath came upon Israel because of this census, nor was the number recorded in the account of the Chronicles of King David. A lot of information just in that. <clears throat> One is that we know he came back and he said, okay, here's your number. But Chronicles tells us he didn't finish the number, which means David sends him back to get that number. But the wrath of God interferes. It also tells us that the tallies weren't accurate. They didn't have all the information. And we have to bear that in mind when they round these numbers off and they hand them to us. The tallies are in Israel, in in, in 1 Samuel, 1,300,000 men. But in Chronicles, it's 1,570,000 men. And the difference is uh, in leaving off the, uh, Samuel leaves off the standing army, which is given to us in chapter 27, 
how many from each tribe formed the standing army. And I don't want to tie you up with that. You can go to those chapters and research it if it's that important to you. Uh, It's kind of frustrating to come up here and pass over it in 18 seconds when you study it in and out for hours, just making sure you can understand, okay, that I got it now. This is a standing army. It says it right here. And this is not, this is the militia. It says it right here. All right, I got it. Why can't they just put it on the same page? I don't understand why the guy in Chronicles couldn't say, oh, Samuel left this out, but here's the answer to that question for you. Anyway, verse 10 now. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly in, that I, in what I have done. But now I pray, O Yahweh, Take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Well, he realizes his ambition, his deadly ambition, uh, was not pleasing to God. It was an offense to God, that he was outside of God's will, that God does not want an aggressive king to conquer anybody. Uh, Israel had her own needs, and she was to preserve the nation to produce Messiah. Being king is beyond being a celebrity. You have so much power. You know, celebrities, especially sports celebrities, you know, everything's handed to them. Picasso was a celebrity, the artist that couldn't draw straight. Um, He would, it's said that Picasso would pay with a check. He'd write a check. And that's how he would pay for his meals, a hotel, wherever he had to pay for something. And the people would never cash the check because it had his signature on it. And they'd frame it and they'd put it up, you know, like Picasso was here. Big, smart, cheap skate. <laughs> the point is he was a celebrity. And with that comes favors and a sort of royal treatment. And we see this in athletes. They expect uh, not to pay for a meal in a restaurant. Uh, and if they do have to pay it, they're probably pretty indignant. Now, not, not the bench warmers. I mean, we're talking about the stars. Well, a king, especially in this ancient Eastern culture, their status was just, forget it. I mean, they wanted your head. They'd just take your head. Say, hey, chop his head off for me. And that would be it. So you have to factor in to his thinking that he's not denied anything. <clears throat> he's, he's now the king, and he's loving it. And he he makes this blunder. Uh, That's part of the psychoanalysis, I think, of the man. And uh, it says here in verse 10, So David said to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Yahweh, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Well, he had ten months to consider. At this point, I'd like to read from three Proverbs. Proverbs 13.10, which addresses this. Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. And that is uh, what is happening, going to happen to David. I believe there were those in the kingdom that were on board with this. Joab was not, and many others were not, but I think there were still, you know, as, you know, as people go, you just you can't get everybody to agree with the same thing. Uh, Proverbs 8.13, the fear of Yahweh. Uh, the fear of Yahweh is to hate evil, 
pride and arrogance. David has taken a vacation from these things. It's amazing that God exposes these two great sins of David, the the Uriah Bathsheba thing and this here. And yet he is such a man of God. It just, uh, you know, Abraham's sins and Daniel's and Joseph's, so much of what they did wrong and didn't get right, is kind of covered up because well, it certainly didn't have the opportunities David had either as this king. But God, uh, he lays it out and he says, and yet of all the kings that follow, Hezekiah, Josiah, those good kings, they still were not David. Uh, Proverbs fourteen twenty seven. The fear of Yahweh is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Well, those Proverbs would have served the king well. Had he listened to them, had he known them, had he complied to them, with them. But I believe also that God is saying the reason why David disobeyed and fell under the influence of Satan is not because of willpower, but because he's born a sinner. It's just this craving in us to sin. And God understands this and manages it in his people rather than abandoning his people or pretending it's not there. God is very upfront about it. In fact, he's so upfront about it, he says, even your good deeds are filthy rags to me. And that keeps us on our toes, keeps us before the throne, keeps us dependent on God, keeps us honest before him. And say, Lord, I'm struggling with something. I'm having a hard time with this. And you can spend years doing that as an indication that God has not abandoned you. Because if he has abandoned, had abandoned you, you wouldn't be calling to him. You, you cannot call upon the Lord without the Lord. He is, um, you know, when Jesus said, you know, without me you can do nothing. That's an understatement. Uh, it's very serious stuff. And so if you're struggling and, and you're calling out to the Lord, don't, don't hand the victory to the devil and think that God has abandoned you. Um, he has not. We're so quick to think God has abandoned us when we fail or when we are being failed, when things are falling apart around us. And we have all of these scriptural examples in godly people to tell us otherwise. I mean, consider Naomi. She loses her husband. She loses her two sons. She's left with nothing but a Gentile to go back home with. And they have nothing. They're so poor, she's got to go glean in the fields. Naomi had her bouts. I left full and I've come back empty. And yet God didn't forsake her. So um, it, this is what it, the fight is all about. We should Christians should always have a fire of encouragement. When God told the Jews... Concerning the altar in the book of Leviticus, he said, the fire on the altar shall not go out. We'd be silly to think God was only concerned with the fire on the altar and not the fire in our hearts. Uh, it's this, uh, this is ugly. No war is nice. It's ugly stuff. Uh, war in the spirit. Um, we talk about, well, I'm a prayer warrior. Well, you should be pretty beat up if you are a prayer warrior because you're getting a lot of prayers not answered granted the way you want, because this is the fight. and uh, But yet you have enough to know to keep praying. Uh, be careful, all of us. Anyway, Hezekiah, the king. Uh, well, before I get to Hezekiah, verse 11. 
Now, when David arose in the morning, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, now we pause there. Gad had advised David to move from one location when running from Saul and to another location, and it evidently succeeded, and that's back in 1 Samuel chapter 22. So he had been with David a long time. He and Nathan were very much a part of David's ministry. So much so, uh, centuries later, when Hezekiah is now king, we read this in Second Chronicles chapter 29. Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the house of Yahweh with cymbals and stringed instruments and with harps according to the commandment of David, of Gad the, seer, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For thus was the commandment of Yahweh by his prophets. My point is, this man Gad was a big deal in Israel because God made him so. He was very much a part of the uh, king's council. He was uh, anointed by the Lord. And he was uh, involved in establishing public worship uh, in God's house, uh, not only amongst the Levites, but for the benefit of the, the people, the public. But he can't go to David. He couldn't go to David until David saw his sin. David was again in denial. Now David realizes he's condemned in his own heart. And now the man of God can approach without extra drama. Because it would have probably been very ugly. Now, that's not always the case. Nathan went to David when David was still in denial and dealt with him. And David submit, submitted. I, we read this and we say, well, Lord, may you find me examining myself also. If confronted with truth by a child of God, how will I react? Confronted with truth, not opinion. I don't want to give anyone license. You know what? I have been wanting to tell you. I can't stand that color on you. And I'm just going to have to tell you. you know, that's not God. <laughs> that's, anyway, how will I handle a loving touch of correction? Under whose influence will I be? Now listen to this proverb. I hope you've been listening to everything, but this too. A gentle tongue breaks a bone. Man, isn't that true? Somebody can sometimes, I mean, I've told a story when I got out of, uh, I came back on leave from the military and I was driving. My mom was in the back seat and uh, somebody cut me off or something and, and I let a word fly. I forgot I wasn't in the barracks, just for a moment. And there was dead silence in the car while I was shrinking down. I couldn't see over the dashboard anymore. I felt so small, and there it came. You have a filthy mouth. Oh, man. To this moment, it hurts. A gentle tongue breaks a bone. She didn't say, I didn't raise you that way. She didn't go off. It's just a very small, still voice, and she never said anything else. She probably said... Yeah, well, he's in the military. Of course he's like this, but he wasn't going to give me a pass. Anyhow, um, I, I, you know, I, I used to wonder why guys would come home from... When I was a boy, many of the young men were going off to Vietnam, and they'd come home from leave, and they wouldn't say anything. They were very quiet. And I figured they, didn't want to, they couldn't control their tongues. Anyway, uh, others will pay for David's carelessness. 
1 Corinthians 18, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul is saying, if something has become a battlefield where you're influencing somebody else who's weaker than you to be confused about their faith, if you're the cause of it, then fix it. And Paul is saying, if it were me, and I found out I was doing something to cause a weaker Christian to stumble with the Lord, then I'm going to have to address this. Now, there are limits to that, of course. Um, it can't be something wholesome. I, I like G. Campbell Morgan's analogy. If, if wearing clothes makes my brother stumble, he's going to have to fall on his face. Because I'm going to wear clothes. So anyway, verse 12, Go and tell David, thus says Yahweh, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. This message of the prophet, Gad is speaking. It's going to shake the entire kingdom. Verse 13, so Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, seven years of famine, you, you get, he has to pick, David has to pick one of these. Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land, or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days? <clears throat> Plague in your land. Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. Well, again, reconciling Second Samuel 24 with Chronicles, First Chronicles 21, is very time-consuming. Here we have another discrepancy. In First Chronicles, the famine is said to be three months. David chose three months of famine or... And here it says seven years. Well, three months of famine is not a famine. It's just, you know, just a shortage at the store. Uh, they can get through that. And I think, so I'm saying I think the, the, the chronicler makes the mistake because it's three months of uh, being pursued, three months of plague, and then he writes in three months of famine. Uh, this is the right one, self-correcting feature of Scripture, still trustworthy. If you understand anything about preserving ancient writings you would have to be amazed at the scripture. And these little in, uh, discrepancies are resolved internally. And through the system, the, the, what I mentioned earlier, the context, the grammar, and the cross-references uh, will, will answer these questions. Any, anyway, coming back to this verse, um, well, coming back to this topic, I, I do think that God allows perplexing and challenging sections in Scripture like this to force us to cling to what is clear and not to abandon what uh, is unclear. Uh, to say, well, I may not have all the answers, but I have enough of the answer. And we do this in life, of course. We have enough of an answer, we, we act on that. We don't have all the answers, we don't always need them. I may not understand, but I know this. Uh, Jesus healed the blind man, and they were interrogating him. He says, well, I don't know about all that, but I know this. I was blind, and now I see, and he's the one that did it. He's very clear about that, and he wasn't going to let anything take that away from him. Yeah, but he doesn't, you know, on the Sabbath, and he isn't listening to the, to the incidentals. <clears throat> Science is permitted to have her theories, many of them proven false. Science is supposed to stand on fact. And in Scripture, 
uh, we apply the same thing. You can have a theory about something, but the fact is what remains. And uh, moving to verse 14, and David said to Gad, I am in a great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So famine, plague, or war, those were the three choices. David never lost sight of God's mercy, verse 15. So Yahweh sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time, from Dan to Bathsheba, 70,000 men of the people died. Well, he made it clear that he was going to judge so that when these people died, no one could say it was a coincidence or an act of Satan. God is saying this is a judgment on David and the nation, the kingdom, for their presumption, their intended aggression, evidently. When you think about how many troops David lost in Absalom's rebellion, uh, this is uh, three times lower, uh, I mean higher, pardon me, than Absalom's. Anyway, verse 16, a lot of facts and details and little things like that, but Without those things, it's just kind of, it just leaves you with questions upon questions. You say, I've got to answer some of these questions. I can't just pass over them. Verse 16, and when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, Yahweh relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was by the thrashing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, verse 17 Then David spoke to Yahweh when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Well, a lot going on here. In verse 16, the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it. Uh, That's where the uh, major population would have been centered in Jerusalem. The Lord restrains his hand because David, of course, his intercessory prayer, prayer on behalf of others. But one of the characters that comes forward in all this is Aruna, the Jebusite, or Canaanite, the city of Jebus, but he was in, in the land of Canaan. His Jewish name is Ornan in First Chronicles. Now, this is, means something. This is not just, oh, by the way. He is converted to Yahweh, to worshiping the God of the Jews. And there we find him in, in what is now Jerusalem. David saw the angel physically, or literally, and so did Aruna, by the way. First Chronicles 21, David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of Yahweh standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. So David's not alone here. He's got his leaders with him. And uh, they're just in sackcloth, the demonstration of uh, their sincere regret and repentance before the Lord. But we've got to get more into Aruna. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to Yahweh on the thrashing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. This is consistent with Leviticus 4, which I'll just read part of it. When a ruler has sinned and has done something unintentionally against 
any of the commandments of Yahweh for his God and anything which should not be done and is guilty. And then it goes on to say that he has to make these offerings for his sin. And that's what Gad is having David do, comply with Levitical law. Verse 19, so David, according to the word of Gad, went up as Yahweh commanded. So David is totally submitted to the prophet. He's agreeing that when the prophet speaks, it's God speaking. The altar is located where the angel of the Lord stood with his sword in his hand to destroy Jerusalem. This is going to be the permanent and exclusive site of the altar to Yahweh amongst the Jews from this moment forward. This is the place of judgment. It's going to become the place of grace and of forgiveness, which is grace, and worship. In verse 20, now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. This is a miraculous, this is a miraculous event. Now I mentioned Aruna saw the angel too. First Chronicles 21, verse 20, Ornan, who is Aruna, turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. But Ornan continued thrashing wheat. <laughs> so the sons that they went and hid themselves tells us they all knew this was spiritual, that this wasn't another man, this was an angel over the city. Ornan, his conscience is so clear, he continues doing what he was doing. I mean, he's not, he doesn't have to like, oh man, it's none of that. It's, it is not surprising that the angel directs David to this thrashing floor. At least God has this kind of a man where the altar is going to be. You, the hand of God is in all of this. Um, you know, you, you, the legalists used to lay trips on Christians. You know, you don't want to be caught in a movie theater if the rapture comes. Ornan would have been very comfortable because he wouldn't go see anything he wouldn't be ashamed of. Verse 21, then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the thrashing floor from you, to build an altar to Yahweh, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. I mean, the angel's still hovering there. <laughs> to me, it's kind of bizarre, right? Took that sword out. And yet they've got to take care of business because people are dying. Now, the Jews were prohibited from casually just selling their land. They weren't to push it out of their inheritance. You couldn't take territory in Judah and sell it to somebody in the tribe of Asher, for example. It was very serious business. But Ornan is a converted Jebusite. He's not a Jew. His land, you know, he had really no rights. He was permitted to be in the land, but he was a convert, evidently. Verse 22, And Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and thrashing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. And he's all into this. He's in the, the cause of the king and country is what is paramount to this man. He's willing to sacrifice his profit, financial profit, to serve the king. Uh, he's adding his oxen, his implements, and he says, and take whatever wheat you need for, for a peace offering. That's not stated here in Samuel, but First Chronicles twenty three or 21, verse 23. <clears throat> but Ornan said to David, take it for yourself, and let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, 
I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the thrashing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. How can you not love this guy? And he's just totally, you know, if the king is in need, if this is something between God and the king, then I want to do everything I can do to support him. This is what Christianity is supposed to be, is it not? When the king has on, we call Jesus the king of kings, lord of lords, and we mean over the everything, the sovereign. Um, we want to give it all. We find out we can't, but we, we try. Verse 23 now. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May Yahweh your God accept you. Now he's not saying Yahweh's your God and I worship trinkets over here. He's... This is common speech in that time. <clears throat> or I should say it's not so uncommon. A remarkable man, recommended by an angel. Uh, that's where the angel stands still. Uh, would God recommend me? Is, you know, just thinking through this, he has such a clear conscience. He's reverent, he's decent, he's helpful and accommodating at the same time. Not only is he helpful, but he makes... David, feel like he's welcome. Somebody can help you with a grudge, right? You know, not this guy. Uh, and they, they, they help you, but again, it's not very friendly. That's not Aruna. He's very respectful and anything I can do, I give it all. He's generous. He gives more than what he's asked. Some Christians are tightwads. They won't tithe. But uh, they've bought some pretty expensive excuses as to why they can't tithe. Uh, again, tithing is not about the money about the heart. Um, anyway, verse 24, Then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to Yahweh my God with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the thrashing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David knew the sacrifice means you have to spend you, it costs, it's an expense. It hurts to give. Now Samuel records only the value of the ground where the altar was to be, the thrashing floor, for 50 shekels of silver. There's two different Greek words are being used, uh, Hebrew words are being used here. For the thrashing floor, the Hebrew word goran. And then in First Chronicles, so David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. There's a different Hebrew word, maquam, and that is the area where the temple would go. So David buys up the whole area. He's got the one plot of ground where the wheat is being thrashed, but then Ornan owns all this, these other acres surrounding it, and David buys up the whole thing for 600 shekels, and this is where the temple will go, and the altar will go in that very spot. <clears throat> First Chronicles 22, verse 1. Then David said, This is the house of Yahweh God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Now remember, the elders are there. The, the king's court, his scribes, they're there. And this is an official edict of the king. This wasn't, they come back the next day. Now, where did we do that? Uh, they're very clear about this. And, and likely, uh, not likely, they would have marked the spot. Verse 25 and David built there an altar to Yahweh and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So Yahweh heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. 
This again, this threshing floor is Mount Moriah as we know it, where Abraham um, bound Isaac and the Lord delivered him. Solomon will build the temple on this site. Second Chronicles 3. Now Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where Yahweh had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Oran the, Ornan the Jebusite. So we have a reason for what we believe, what we believe. And sometimes you've got to dig for it. Uh, but uh, there it is laid out for us uh, very clearly. It says here in verse 25, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to cover his sin. God forgave David. And one day he took David home to heaven. God records the sins of David, the man he used in a mighty way. Uh, who is ready to judge David and say, God has used me like he used David at the same time, or more. Uh, God wants to use us in spite of our failure. He's, God is not surprised when you fail. Uh, he, God is never surprised. You can't, you can't surprise God. He'd be a terrible person to play hide-and-go-seek with or something like that. You just can't, you know, you can't get him. So, in spite of our imperfections, they're the very people he calls. And then you, as I know everybody knows that that's here tonight, but it sure helps to be reminded of it, especially if you had a bad trip here on the road driving in. I didn't. I was perfect driving in. Well, there was this one truck, but that, that's another story. Um, it was his fault. He should have been in the other lane. I, no, I called a tow truck after I see in the rearview mirror he was in the ditch, but that didn't happen. Anyway... David will go to his grave praising God. Listen to this. I have this part of this on my desk in my office, but listen to First Chronicles chapter 29, beginning in verse 2. David speaking at the end of his life. Now for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood, for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. And he continues. Now, you cannot read that like this, now for the house of my God, I prepare with all my might gold for the house. I mean, you just this is excitement there. And it's, it's sad to see Christians who have such little respect for the assembly, for the house of, it's still the house of God. The pillar and ground of truth, Paul said, the house of God, the pillar and ground of truth, just as it was to the Jews concerning their temple, it is for us concerning the church. And... Um, you know, they hem and haw because they're cheapskates. They don't, they, they don't want a power trip. They don't want to hear anybody else preach. How, how do you tithe if you're only you and your, your family? How do you, what do you tithe to? Well, I'm going to have to give myself a tithe. Uh, I don't know. I just, you're sad. And they're everywhere, too. And you, they, uh, some of them is questionable Christ, Christianity. Um, it's, don't buy into that nonsense. Anyway, let's go get them. When we're done, let's go driving around looking for them. Cruising the neighborhood. (laughs) 
You, you're a Christian? Yeah, what church do you go to? What's the number over there? We're going to find out. You better not be lying. We'll be back. Praise the Lord. Anyway. (laughs) Stupid things Christians could do. I don't want to read a book like that. I don't need to read a book like that. Be a page in there with me, I'm sure. Anyway, uh, not much of an ending that we have here in uh, 2 Samuel. David built there an altar to Yahweh and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So, verse 25, so Yahweh heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Okay, you say, okay, that's the end of the record of David's life in 2 Samuel. Is that it? Well, Chronicles comes along and it just corrects this. Well, I don't say corrected because that makes it sound like they were wrong for doing it. It's not, they were not wrong. That is how God wanted it done. Uh, but Chronicles addresses it. First Chronicles, again, chapter 29. And the period that he reigned over Israel was 40 years, seven years he reigned in Hebron. 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. So <clears throat> he died in a good old age, full of days and riches and honor. And Solomon, his son, reigned in his place. Now the acts of King David, first and last, indeed, They are written in the book of Samuel the seer, in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer. With all his reign and his might and the events that happened to him, to Israel, and to all the kingdoms of the lands. Now that's how you end the story of David. I mean, with... Again, with all his reign and his might. I, I want that. I want to be to live for Christ with all my might. And so much we learn about God, about ourselves, by the life of this one man in the Old Testament. And after David, things were never the same. Heroes pass away, but the power that made them heroes, that remains, and that is who, a, who our God is. Let, let's pray. Our Father, uh, thank you for not concealing the sins and the shortcomings of one of the great servants uh, found in Scripture so that we could learn and be encouraged. And as always, may we turn these lessons from the Bible into love, agape love. May, may we not just be learners of the word, But may we love one another in the strength of Christ. May we not be afraid to hurt and be spent. And may you find us very much involved in you, Lord Jesus, through your spirit to the glory of the Father. May you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.